In the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. Hey, welcome back to the Pittsburgh Oratory School of Christi, the School of Christ. And we're continuing with our reading of Romano Guardini's book called Meditations Before Mass. Uh, it's been our way over this past year to reflect upon the liturgy in greater depth and to make use of an author who actually wrote back, if you remember, back in the 1940s. And so he's writing before the Second Vatican Council. And yet he writes with such beauty that you get a sense that it really captures what the council desired for us to do in the, in the sense of going back to the sources in order that we might understand what we're doing with a greater clarity and that we might participate more fully. And is Brother Thomas around here? I thought I saw him come into the room. Yeah, there he is. He had mentioned that a seminary professor had said, when you read Romano Guardino, you almost want to weep because you get a sense of what the council really desired, that this is the kind of education, the formation that the, the council desired for us. Uh, and it's most noticeable, I think, in tonight's reading, you get a sense of where the council is going, especially in terms of our uh, reading the word of God, that it desired a greater participation on our part. If you remember, the old liturgy would, uh, the, the readings would be in Latin, and uh, at times the readings would then be done in English, but not all the time. So uh, often there wasn't the ability, unless you had the missal open, certainly, to be able to, uh, to read the, the scriptures as they're being proclaimed. But that's different than hearing them proclaimed. And Guardini will get into this, how that makes such an extraordinary difference for us to actually hear the word of God proclaimed, that there's something actually in hearing it that instead of shrinking the word down as the written word does on the page, it expands it within our heart and our mind that we might uh, better hear the word that God is speaking to us at that moment within this particular liturgy that uh, allows in some sense for the greater action of God upon us. Uh, if we were simply to read uh, everything from a missal or a book, then we'd all be sitting in silence at mass and we would be readers. We would be like the Christian scientists over here. They have a reading room at, where they get together and but that's sort of the, uh, the essence of their, of, of their worship. But for us, it's supposed to be an encounter with the living God and also uh, a radical encounter with the, the living word of God that comes to us and in a special way in and through the liturgy. The word that we receive and the word that we hear proclaimed during the mass is different than the word that we hear simply when we pick up the Bible on our own to read it. There's something about that grace-filled moment of the liturgy itself that God makes himself present, his truth present to us in a radical way. And this is what Guardini is going to try to communicate uh, to us tonight, as well as the care that we are to give in preparing ourselves to hear that word. That often it simply seems to be a prelude to the liturgy of the Eucharist and often can be uh, breezed through very quickly, perhaps not with a very good reader, not heard, and then perhaps not preached upon either. And whenever that is the case, we, I think, aren't showing great care for the word that is being trust, entrusted to us at that moment, uh, and certainly for those who proclaim it, who preach it, uh, a greater weight is put upon them uh, to approach the word of God uh, with a kind of seriousness of heart, uh, to pray that God would open one's mind and heart and, and prepare themselves 
uh, for the preaching. And uh, I came across one little quote before we begin with Guardini's material uh, from Origen, who was a theologian, scripture scholar uh, from the second and third century. So we're talking one, I think he was born around 184, died uh, around 253, and uh, was a prolific writer, wrote 2,000 uh, treatises during the course of, of his life. Uh, and so one of the earliest Christian writers, and, and in many ways one of the most brilliant writers from the early Christian tradition. And I just have one little paragraph for you about on how he speaks about the Word of God and the particular care that we are to have for it that is akin to how it is that we receive the Most Holy Eucharist. And it will be surprising. This is someone, remember, writing in the second or maybe early third century. You who are accustomed to taking part in the divine mysteries, you know when you receive the body of the Lord how to protect it with all caution and veneration, lest any small part of it, lest any of the consecrated gift be lost. For you believe, and correctly, that you are answerable if anything falls from there by neglect. But if you are so careful to preserve his body, and rightly so, how do you think there is less guile to have neglected God's word than to have neglected his body? And so our approach, Origen, is telling us to our hearing the word of God proclaimed at the Mass. Uh, our preparation for that moment should be equal to our preparation then to the receiving of that word of God made flesh in the gift of the, of the Holy Eucharist. Uh, we are not to be passive, as it were, passive participants uh, in that moment, it's not informational. A homily is not to be in informational. It's not to be overly, even overly scholarly, I, I think, in, in the sense that we're not sitting in a theology class or a scripture class. This is to be, for us, uh, an, a, moment, a moment of encounter with the living word. And we are to give it the same care that we would give when we receive the most holy Eucharist. I just realized that we started without singing our opening hymn, so I'd ask you all to stand. And the tune is Lord Who Throughout These 40 Days. Please be seated. Pretty good tonight, I have to say. <laughs> Much better than we usually sound. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to jump right into the text um, so that we can try to fit this all into an hour. And there, again, the red italicized print is mine. And as we go through the text, uh, to try to treat this as a kind of group lexio, uh, where you feel free to ask questions or make comments at any point. I'll stop after every paragraph or so. As an act, the Holy Mass speaks to us in a variety of ways. First, Guardini tells us, God makes himself known through his words of revelation. And through this also reveals to us what the world is and who we are as human beings. Through the readings and through the speaker, God speaks. But the mystery of God's word extends to the inspiration it gives rise to in the heart of those who listen. The wisdom of God penetrates the individual and renews the soul. What takes place then is not simply the transmission of information, but rather a personal encounter with the living and true God. 
Thus, Guardini states, it is not sufficient merely to accept ideas and understand commandments. We must lay bare our hearts and minds to the power that comes to us from beyond. We must prepare the soil of our hearts to receive the seed of God's word. It is a word that must be proclaimed, not simply read. Heard and allowed to penetrate to the depths of a person's religiosity. We must cultivate that soil through preparing ourselves by meditating upon the scriptures ahead of time, reading passages in their entirety and in their context and developing a love for the word within our hearts. And so again, not mere communication, not mere information that is, uh, but something that, uh, more of an encounter with God himself. And it was always seen, even as a matter of pride uh, for the Israelites, that God spoke to them. Our God is a God who speaks and has made his will known, his mind known. So the fact that God had given his people commandments was always seen as something that made them as a people extraordinary. That God had revealed himself, something of his inner self, his mind to them directly. And we see certain, as it were, word events take place throughout salvation history where God gave his people prophets and spoke to them through them in order that they might be redirected to his way if they had gone astray in any way. But with the coming of Christ, there is something that is unique that takes place. The revealer and the revealed are one and the same. That God gives us his only begotten son, the word made flesh. And so there is nothing further to reveal to us. God has given us what is most precious, what is most perfect. God's eternal word took on our flesh as human beings. And so we do not wait another revelation. We're not waiting for God to speak to us again. And contemplating Christ and entering into this relationship with Christ, we are uh, made, uh, uh, what is made accessible to us is the very mind of God himself. And so we do not need uh, to be searching desperately for revelations of any other sort. The perfect revelation has been made to us in the Son. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people about St. Paul the Cross, the founder of the Passions. Most of you are probably familiar with him since both the, the nuns and uh, the priests have their house here in Pittsburgh. But St. Paul the Cross used to give his people, his directees, an, ex an exercise every morning before they even got out of bed, before they did anything, was for 15 minutes to meditate upon the wounds of Christ, to allow one's mind simply to pass from one wound to the other. And in this, Paul the Cross said, one hears the perfect sermon, that the, what is communicated to us in and through these wounds of Christ is the perfect love of God, his healing, his mercy, his hope. And so our meditating upon the word of God made flesh, but as he manifests himself in his fullness on the cross, when he pours out that love so completely, so perfectly, this is the perfect sermon for us. And so we do not need to go searching for something more to open ourselves up to the mind and the will of God. It has been made manifest to us perfectly. Ours is to give care 
to our own hearts in order that we might be able to contemplate and to receive that word when it's proclaimed to us. That we would do everything in our, in our uh, capacity to purify, purify our hearts and our minds that we might receive it and that it might bear fruit within us, fruit of repentance, of humility, of conversion, of life. And this is what Guardini is going to seek to, to guide us through in the text this evening. Any questions or thoughts so far before we jump into the text? It's better you're staring at me like you have a question. No question? Not, not yet. Okay. Holy Mass, he writes, is an act. It is not, however, enacted mutely, but combines doing and speaking. It includes several varieties of words, and it is helpful not only to our understanding, but also to our effective participation in, in the liturgy to realize this multiplicity and to learn to distinguish between different kinds of words employed. And so tonight we will be speaking of the revelatory word of God, what we hear proclaimed in the liturgy of the word. So every Sunday, a portion of the scripture is, is read to us. Next month, we'll be looking at what Guardini describes as the, uh, oh my gosh, executory word. Thank you very much, James. God bless you. The executory word that is associated more with the, with the liturgy of the Holy Eucharist, the, the very words of consecration themselves. And so, but tonight he wants to look at the, the liturgy of the word, God's revelation. First of all, there are words from revelation. With them, God tells man who he is and what the world is in his eyes. He proclaims his will and gives us his promise. They are biblical words, and in the celebration of the Lord's memorial, they confront us at every step. Indeed, the first part of the Mass consists almost entirely of speech. Action is limited to the simplest movements, certain gestures and positions, or the passing from one symbolic place to another. So very simple in order simply to prepare ourselves to what is to come, that we gain what Guardini spoke about months ago that we reflect upon, a kind of composure, stillness of mind and heart. We prepare ourselves to receive what is to be proclaimed to us. And as I mentioned in the introduction, hopefully we've already read over this word so that we can hear it uh, as fully as possible when it is proclaimed before us. Epistle and gospel are readings taken directly from scripture. The first, as the name suggests, from the letters of the apostles, but also from the Acts and from the Old Testament. The second, again indicated by the name, from the reports of the life of the Lord, the Gospels. The biblical reading is continued in the sermon, which is intended to explain, enlarge upon, adopt, and apply the direct words of God. It loses its intrinsic character in the degree that it expresses instead the personal human conceptions of the speaker. Very important paragraph. And so, you know, people often ask, you know, when uh, do I still fulfill my Sunday obligation if I get there by the Alleluia? And uh, there's nothing in canon law that says anything about what time you get to Mass. Uh, but what's more important is how you stand in the eyes of God. 
that, you know, to come to Mass late on one occasion or a few occasions because of illness or traffic, that's one thing, to uh, chronically come late to Mass and miss the liturgy of the Word speaks of something going on within a person's heart. Uh, uh, might not be intentional, but uh, I think if we're coming late to every Mass, we have to ask ourselves the question, why? Why is it that I cannot make myself present to this most important part of my, my daily life, to hear and to receive the Word of God? And I think part of that, when one is even saying that, well, if I get there by the hallelujah, at least I'm hearing the gospel, you know, but what, how about the first reading and the, the epistle? Do they not somehow matter? Or the beginning of the Mass, the penitential rite and everything else that uh, we prepare ourselves, we use to prepare ourselves uh, for, for the liturgy. And this, it's interesting that he includes also here the sermon. It's not meant for announcements. And it's not made for an appeal for money. Uh, and it's not meant to be a time where a priest is sharing his own personal stories, jokes, or his personal and sometimes strange views on Christianity itself. Nor is he to become the center of attention uh, we've discussed this in the past, you know, if everything is this easy movement up to that moment, as Guardini tells us, very simple, straightforward, all meant to create this kind of composure, then the priest who is proclaiming, preaching the gospel should have that same level of composure that is really reflective of what he, of what he is doing at that moment. He's proclaiming the word of God. And so he in some ways he should not be over animated in the sense of drawing attention to himself and as well as within preaching you know i think there's this sense now that the priest should walk up and down the, the aisle preaching and be very animated to somehow as if somehow that is needed to engage the congregation and on some level, to me, that, that speaks of a little bit of a lack of faith in the power of that word itself and the, the power of the, the sacred moment that we are in, in the Holy Liturgy, that somehow we would have to use our own you know, creative abilities and, and charisma to fire up the congregation about the word of God that we are proclaiming. You know, there should be enough faith and zeal within one's heart uh, in proclaiming that word, that that is what should penetrate the heart of one's listeners. I think if we are overly relying upon these external kinds of actions and behavior, we're not focusing on the things that we need to focus upon. And so Guardini is very, uh, very clear about this. It's not, uh, you know, to become a sideshow. It is meant to be something where we are able to listen at the very depths of our being. And so the solemnity that would surround that would be appropriate. You know, the uh, use of the, the, the gospel book, the uh, insensation uh, of the gos gospel book before the proclamation of the gospel, the, you know, the chanting of the Alleluia, and even the chanting of the gospel itself, all these things would be appropriate in order that that uh, word might be proclaimed with the solemnity that it deserves, and again, that is appropriate to the, 
to that moment, uh, but not, it's not meant to become uh, a kind of entertainment. Okay. Any thoughts on this or anything so far? Yes. You could probably tell me the scripture in verse, but I would think that uh, it's probably from Paul. Faith comes by hearing, right. hearing by the word of God. That's, that's, that's right. And Guardini will get into this in great detail that, um, you know, there is even, I think, a mistake in using, uh, in many ways, the missile or reading while it's, the word is being proclaimed. I don't think there should be any mediation at that moment when we are seeking this kind of sustained attention to the word of God as it's being proclaimed, that we hear the word of God that he desires for us to hear in that moment. And if we are focused on the page, even if it is the very same scriptures, if we're focused on the page, we have this tendency to focus on this or that detail. And you know, it might be that which is most attractive to us at the moment or what might speak to us at the moment, but it might not be what God wants us to hear. So being able, as it were, to suspend judgment and allow us to hear that word as it's proclaimed in its fullness, I think becomes very important. Same would be true, I think, especially if we understand that this in terms of God communicating to us directly. In our conversations with each other, we don't hand each other you know, uh, you know, a document of our, what we're going to say to them. Hello, good morning, my name is you know, Father David. We engage them in uh, a direct conversation. It would be stilted and bizarre if we did something like that. And so why, why is it that we would do that in our listening to the word of God being proclaimed if we believe the very things that we are talking about tonight, that we believe that this is the living and true true God, that this is his living word, and that we, this is an encounter that we're engaged in. Yes, Father. Is God present in the word as it is proclaimed, or is he present in the word that's printed in the Bible? Well, I, I most fully in the word as it is proclaimed. I think we would say the, the words on the page are printed words, and we have gotten so used to uh, I think in our reading, to reading silently. And, and I think that's what makes us read so quickly these days. We skim. And that word written on the page is not the word of God. It's not the word of God. It's put in a form in which we can sort of follow it and read it and make use of it. But the, the word of God is living and active, penetrating, as it were, to the depths of our being. And the word written on a page is not going to do that. It's going to be one that, he, through hearing in particular, that enters into us most fully. And in many ways, we've even found that to be true in some of the groups that we have at the oratory. This group, or when we read the Fathers on Wednesday night, there is a radical difference uh, from reading, say, St. Isaac the Syrian silently in my room I might read the homily that we're discussing 20 times over in preparation for the group and make my notes and everything that sort of stands out for me. But the moment that you're in the middle of that group with a, a group of people who are focused upon hearing what Isaac, you know, the truth that is being proclaimed through his homilies, and that is read out loud, it has an impact upon 
the whole group. There's a tendency, as I had mentioned in, I think, I don't know if Guardini mentions it, I think he does in the next page, when we write a text on a page, it shrinks it, it reduces it, you know, to this manageable form. But when we hear the Word of God proclaimed, it expands the mind and it expands the heart. And so I often find myself saying things in a group or hearing something from the text or from something that somebody comment, you know, made a comment during the group that I had never thought of before, that something comes forward from that homily of St. Isaac. And in a far more powerful way, in the proclamation of God's word, I think that is true too, that where we don't seek to, sh seek to shrink it down, and I think we can do that in multiple ways, not only in reading it, but I think uh, priest in preaching it, you know, we are so conscious of time. Now, if we preach a 20-minute homily, we'll get lynched at the, the end of Mass. You know, when you think of Augustine, you know, some of his homilies probably went on for an hour, close to an hour. And, or Chrysostom, you know, it's uh, only uh, St. Peter Chrysologus was truly wisest doctor of the church. He preached these very short, he took mercy on his congregants, he preached these very short homilies. But most of them preached these very lengthy homilies that they, you know, that act of preaching for them uh, was uh, an encounter with uh, God's word, but also uh, a movement of the spirit within them. And so not something stilted. And, you know, as a preacher, I think in, when you're a young preacher, you're sort of compelled because of your inexperience to write things down, to think things through, and in order to make it clear so that you aren't rambling and you develop your thoughts so you don't fall into heresy. And, but you, and you might do that for 10, 15 years, but even the most well-prepared homily that is beautiful or uh, that really resonates with people, there's something that feels stilted about that for the priest when we rely solely on the text. And it's because of that, in that moment of preaching itself, that we are focused upon the particular words that we wrote down to capture what we wanted to say. And I'm not saying we shouldn't, a priest shouldn't prepare. You should do the same level of preparation uh, for that preaching and uh, most especially prayer. But in order for that moment to be one of encounter for the preacher as much for those in the congregation, there has to be this radical preparation of the mind and the heart, the soil of the heart first to receive that word, and then in that moment a radical openness to it in order that it might be proclaimed in the way that God desires and that the word that he wants to be proclaimed and heard that day is proclaimed and heard. Well, the moment we get into an overly controlled experience of that moment, you know, we, we are shaping and directing things in accord with our own mind. And, and on some level, certainly one has to do that, you know, as a preacher. But there are times, just like within the group, that there will be inspiration that comes on the way to the pulpit or in hearing the word proclaimed again, even though you've read it many times and prayed about it again, when the reader's reading the scriptures, something comes to mind that's, that, uh, where you have a sense, I need, this is what I need to preach about. 
in this moment. I might use all the things that I had in mind, but I have to bring something else into this now because this is what is made manifest. Yes. Somebody had done a word study on the ancient Hebrew words for prayer and hearing and found out that there was a similarity to them and had conjectured that the ancient Hebrews prayed their prayers out loud so that they could hear them in their own ears, whether they were had the ability to read or whether they had memorized it. And you sometimes see uh, videos of Orthodox men praying and they're, right. they're praying out right. loud. They don't, right. they don't do the mental reading thing. Right. And you know, the same thing with the divine office, the liturgy of the hours. I think there was even a sense among priests who would pray it and others who would pray it, they would still be saying it out loud to themselves or not, you know, or even softly, but they would still be praying the prayers in an audible way. And, you know, I think there's been a movement to, again, reading in those circumstances where one is reading one's prayers. And again, there's not the use of the full person in that, in actually hearing the words, it does penetrate to a deeper level of one's heart, but also one's memory, imagination, you know, when you hear something proclaimed, it's different than, much different than reading it. And so there's been great value, certainly to the printing press, what that's allowed us to do. Uh, but there's also been something that has affected us in a negative way, and that, that is how we read, how we listen to a word. You, you had another comment to add to that or no? Okay, yes. So I read In Conversation with Christ by Peter Rohrbach, <laughs> and that, um, and he talks about silent meditation. Mm -hmm. So how, so I guess what I'm trying to figure out is, am I doing it right by doing silent meditation or should I be mixing silence with reading aloud or what's? Yeah, I think there's, there's great flexibility, certainly in that regard, you know, that where one might sleep, slip into a, I said sleep, so it sort of tells you where I am, <laughs> slip into a more quiet, a prayer of the quiet, and, or one might read that scripture text and sort of meditate upon it in, in silence. Uh, but I think we were speak, there's something unique about the proclamation of that word liturgically. So the divine office and the, holy, and the celebration of the mass in particular, but I think it's also true, I think, in our day-to-day -day reading of the scriptures. It does help us to memorize certain passages where we would know them by heart. Like some of the Desert Fathers would know the whole, all the Gospels by heart from having read them over and over again. And uh, again, we don't think of that because we think, well, we can just, you know, get on our cell phone or, you know, Google a passage and, and read it. And so there, there isn't a need to do that. Uh, so, you know, Lexio Divina, sacred reading, arises out of the monasticism where they would copy books. And so books had really great value. And if you got to use a book, you would really take your time and you would read it out loud. You would memorize parts of it. You would hold on to it as long as you, you could. Whereas now we sort of breeze th you know, through things very quickly because we know that we could throw it on the shelf or we could just open up our computer and read it whenever we want. But comprehension has slipped because of that, like really knowing because we aren't listening on the same level. And so we turn Christianity and Christ, you know, they become flat as the page 
the Word of God becomes flat as the page that we're reading it off of. You know, think of reading about John the Baptist, you know, his, his preaching, you know, and we hear that, oh, these stories over and over again, but if it is only, you know, a story that we're, you know, hearing read to us, that we are familiar with, we know, we, we believe we know through and through because we've heard it a hundred times, then we're approaching the scriptures in the wrong way. It's inexhaustible. The word of God is inexhaustible. So there's never a time when we would approach the scriptures where God would not speak something unique to us or that, we, that needs to be heard by us at that moment. And so we, we, we have to approach the scriptures with a kind of humility, never having this sense that, well, if I, I've read through the, the Bible one time, I've basically got it. <laughs> Move on to something else. <laughs> yes? So does it take time to build the skill in listening? Most certainly. And I, I think in our generation, perhaps more than previous generations, that we have to consciously slow things down. And it can be painful for us in the beginning because we want to go quickly. And we have to force ourselves to say, no, you know, what I'm going to do is take, take things slowly. And we sort of laugh at our Wednesday night group. If we get, th- if we get through three paragraphs, we, we know we were, we were burning up things. We were flying <laughs> along. And I, I think I mentioned once before, I saw a little review on uh, St. Ch- uh, John Cassian's conferences on Goodreads, you know, that uh, app for reviewing books. And the person's, you know, there's this group of people commenting on it, how they're all reading it together. And one of them says, I found this really great podcast of a group in Pittsburgh who's reading Cassian's work verbatim. And he said, it's, but they're really slow, almost (laughs) painfully slow. In fact, in the beginning, I hated it because it was so slow. And he said, but over time, I began to see the, the, the wisdom in that, that there was something in hearing it read slowly and discussed that really allowed Cassian to become real for him. You know, that this was somebody speaking directly to him and the words, again, were far more rich, rich and challenging than just reading, you know, through the book quickly. So we do, I think you're right, it's, we really have to work hard in our day to foster the practice and think decades of practice in terms of you know, having it become a natural kind of process. Yes? But the Mass itself, or it's repetitious. Every Mass around the whole world mm-hmm. has the same prayers all through the Mass. Right. It's the, the different prayers, like the Epistle, the Gospel, those prayers that are different. And I'd be lost without my little magnificent. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm not going to be hard about this. You know, if you need to use your missile, that's great. And, you know, I think there is a repetition, and I think the repetition frees us. And that's the problem when people play, play fast and loose with the mass. You know, there should be something that we know so well that we can enter into fully, that we don't have to work out to figure out what the priest, what the heck the priest is doing during the mass. And, uh, and so it's, there is a repetition that allows us to enter into it more and more freely. 
And our familiarity with the scriptures, though, must go beyond familiarity, that there has to be a kind of radical openness of mind and heart where we aren't trivializing the word or reducing it simply to our own understanding. Unfortunately, I don't think the children today were taught the mass the way my generation was no, taught. There's, there's no doubt about that. That's right. You know, the formate catechesis, we've labored for a couple generations from a lack of it, and that, that is true in, in regards to how one participates in the Mass. But it's p partly, part of the problem is that we haven't done, I think what Guardini was saying here, even, you know, two decades before the Second Vatican Council, that we never reflected on this in the way that we should in order that this might become the regular practice for us. And so nobody's going to give it to you. All you know, the traditional religious communities have died out. The Catholic schools have lost their Catholic identity. It really has to be within the families that uh, this kind of understanding begins to emerge again. And then within, I think, communities like this, you know, small communities where we're able to reflect upon these things in a deeper way. A question over here. Yeah, I, um, I was reminded of when you were talking about just the power of the proclaimed word, um, the life of St. Anthony of the desert, and a, like a very critical moment of conversion for him was right. actually just going to Mass right. and hearing that gospel passage on, I think it was, if you wish to be perfect, mm -hmm. go right. sell all that you have. Right. And how for so he, many saints. For some, too. right. right. Was, yeah, mm -hmm. so many saints, mm -hmm. and just thinking of, um, yeah, the power of like the directness of mm -hmm. God's word to be able to speak through that and hit like our heart so deeply if we have that That's radical right. openness and wow, like what it how what it turned him into. Right. Yeah. That's right. It's a good point. You know, because you know so much of this, you know, we can be immune to the call to conversion that comes to us through that word. Again, when we limited to our own understanding, you know, that we've heard it before, whereas if there is even an element, I think, of that openness and understanding that this is the Word of God, it's going to, you know, challenge us in ways that we can't imagine. One more. Any more? Okay, we'll move on. Where did I leave off? God's Word? God's Word is a great mystery. Through it, he himself speaks, but in the speech of men, it appears that another form of communication also exists, a so-called purely divine form in which God enlightens and directs the soul, not through the medium of words, but by a thought that stirs only from within, silent, but immediately comprehended. Tidings of this kind can never be passed on to others. They apply solely to him who has received them. With revelation, it is different. It is meant for all men at all times. Hence, it takes the form in which the spiritual community of men asserts itself that of the spoken word, like all speech, it is a purely human blend of idea and sound. God's wisdom has been placed in this human means of communication and can be removed and examined by itself at any time, but in such wise that his wisdom and the word containing it are an organic unit. So two forms, the revelation that comes to us through Christ, his teachings is put into a form then 
the, the scriptures that we can take hold of and that is presented to all of us, and then what is in, experienced in and through prayer and through the gift of faith, where God communicates uh, directly with the individual soul, a truth is comprehended, and but that's meant for the individual alone. But for us, there has to be this organic unit, he's saying, of the hearing of that word, uh, but also receiving of the, the wisdom uh, that God wishes to communicate to us. Even the natural word cannot be separated from its audible sound and taken solely by itself, for it clings to its sound as the soul to the body. This unit now becomes, as it were, the body for a new soul. The divine much as a man already having a body and a soul is filled by grace, which makes him a newer and higher being, a new or spiritual man described by St. Paul. And so there is a kind of sacramental quality to the proclaimed word, the proclamation of it, as it were, the audible proclamation of it gives it flesh. You know, it becomes the, uh, the, the matter or the, or the form, if you will, I'm sorry, the form of, of the proclaimed word. The, the matter would be the, the word itself. And that this organic unit for us is something that we must hold together and that is tra transformative for us. If we strip one from the other, uh, we hinder ourselves from becoming uh, transformed through it. Uh, so, in receiving that word, as in receiving the Holy Eucharist, there's something that, uh, of God's mystery that uh, penetrates into our, our lives. Uh, he uses the, mis the word mystery here, I think, for a particular reason. It's where we get our word uh, sacrament, sacramentum. And so I think he wants us to take hold of this idea as, you know, word as a kind of sacrament to us. And the audible hearing of it is what gives it flesh for us, and we, so we never want to remove that, and we want to be as attentive to that as possible. And you can see why, you know, the, the readers, lectors really have, and Thomas is going to receive uh, lectorship here this, this this coming week. You know how important that that role is entrusted to an individual to proclaim that word with a kind of clarity, but with also purity of heart. Uh, you know, the way that one lives one's life is, is not inconsequential. You know, the, the one who's reading should be seeking to be obedient to that word. And that is going to have an impact on the way that they proclaim it. And the same is true for, for the priest. If he gets up there and morosely sort of goes through the text and, uh, you know, what it's going to proclaim to those in the congregation is a lack of love or a lack of zeal for the Lord. You know, even the most broken homily can be preached with uh, such love, faith, and devotion that it can strike to the hearts uh, of the listeners. Yes? W-O-B had some comments of Holy Father Francis. W-O... W-A-O-B, I guess. Oh, W-A-O, the, the radio station. It's so interesting <laughs> what you had just you know, discussed. <laughs> He was comparing the Jews having the word and law of God on the tablets mm -hmm. from the Father. And then when Christ had the woman caught in adultery and he wrote in the sand, didn't proclaim a thing, just right. wrote. Wrote it. 
how right. he could use it that way right. in his power as the son of God. Right. That people just looked and they knew. Yeah. And always again and again in the scriptures that, you know, he spoke with one who had authority unlike anyone else, you know, as the word of God made flesh. Like we have as, to put it and proclaim it. Right. He could just write it. That's right. And say nothing. Right. Okay, any other thoughts? Yes. I think we've taken, we get to take a lot for granted just because after the printing press, the Bible is so accessible to us and now we don't even open our Bibles. Right. Um, I'm imagining. Isn't that ironic? I think probably families sat around and read it at one point. Yeah. Before that, I'm imagining the early church where the gospels hadn't even been written, and um, and these people are coming out of Jerusalem and telling them what happened it's there. You know, the Son of God came. This. They must have been like literally clinging onto every word that was coming from them, right. listening. Or we just take massive obligation. Right. Or say Peter, who was this timid, you know, one who had denied the Lord, then getting up and preaching and converting 3,000 people. You know, there was a power in his... Because the Holy Spirit, he only had that after the Holy right. Spirit. Right. Yes. Yeah, I, I, like the, I like the fact that he included the, the sermon. Um, mm -hmm. And... And there's sort of this little um, thing that's begun happening, and I want to say it's, it's coming back because I feel like it, it used to be much more common. But I, I go to, to mass, and and more and more, like sometimes the, the priest does say at the end of his sermon, the sign, he says the sign of the cross. But more and more, even if the priest doesn't do that, people are blessing themselves after the sermon now. And it's this thing that just like the more people do it, the more other people are like, oh, am I supposed to be doing that? And then they do it, and then more people do it. And it's just, it's so amazing because in the most simple thing, which is really the most profound thing, because it's, you know, the, the, the sign of the cross and the Trinity and all of that, but you're, you're, the, the message is so clear that that was supposed to be a moment of receiving the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and itself a sacred moment and not like this weird, like little part of mass that, that doesn't, it, it do, it's not required or it, it's just the priest talking about something. Right. And um, it's really lovely. Right. It just kind of underlines Yeah, that. I think any small way that we are acting in accord with the mind of the church in regards to the liturgy, where priests are doing what they should be doing, you know, both in their preparation, even the vesting prayers and things like that, uh, and, uh, you know, the prayers that they say, you know, before they proclaim the gospel and the actions, you know, that surround it, the, the more perfectly they do those, even if they're simple, it communicates a great deal to the congregation. So little by little, by engaging in the liturgy in the way that we should be and with kind of reverence and devotion does have this more of an impact than I think we imagine. So I think when you begin to see something like that, it's probably a reflection of a culture being created in that particular community, that there's much more of a sense of the importance of the proclaimed word. And you know, for Philip Neary, it was familiar discourse on the word of God. So he wasn't counseling his priests to get up and give this, you know, heady lecture on a scripture passage. He wanted them to get up and proclaim the gospel in order that those 
who were at mass could receive that word and you know have it be something that was nourishing as well as challenging in order that they might then you know be able to live out their life more fully and when you create a culture where something like that is being done and simple then uh, you begin to see people making the sign of the cross after something like the homily because they know that what they heard there is connected with what they just heard proclaimed. Yes, I saw another hand flying around. Yes. So this is mainly a question for me, but so I have a young son and I spend most of mass chasing him around, keeping him in the pew, mm -hmm. trying to keep him from crawling under the pew. How do you cultivate that reverence and that silence and composure and to, to receive the word while you're keeping your child from running under the pew? Uh, my dad began with his open hand, <laughs> <laughs> which sometimes had his college ring on it, which is, <laughs> and he moved to the foot. <laughs> And then when I got big, no. Uh, I think there has to be a kind of, you know, if small children are going to be brought, there has to be, you know, a continual a kind of constancy there in formation that takes place. You know, everyone, I think, expects little children to act up. You know, they don't have control of their emotions at that point. And so sometimes they're going to be cranky or fussy, you know, because of being tired or hungry. And so, you know, no priest, expect, you know, is, should be upset about that because I think they expect that that's going to happen. Uh, but parents do, you know, for that formation to take place, it has to be something consistent and constant. You can't say, well, he's only two years old. You know, because and then it becomes he's only three years old and he's only four years. Then pretty soon you have a 15 year old who's acting like a lunatic at mass. You know, so there has to be this kind of consistent, <laughs> consistent formation that takes place over time. And it doesn't have, you know, it doesn't have to be enormously strict. You know, I think it takes place at home and sort of in, uh, you know, the church or the home is the domestic church. And so how one has meals and the composure and demeanor that surround that event and that you try to foster, you know, all these things then translate to what is, ta you know, the, taking place at this sacred meal, you know, the, at the mass that they are, are participating in. So that gradually over time they learn to, that there's something unique taking place here. And so, you know, consistency over time and preparing the children at home. And then afterwards, you know, if there was kind of acting up, again, sort of a consistency of addressing it. It doesn't, again, there doesn't have to be harshness. You know, it's the role of thumb is consistency. Although I heard the role of thumb was actually that men were only allowed to beat their wife with a stick the size of your thumb, anything bigger than that, you would be thrown in jail. <laughs> so we should, probably shouldn't use the, the term roll of thumb. <laughs> Just so you know that little. <laughs>
<laughs> so we had to start using thinner ones on the offices here. I was interested. Yes, James. And utilization, I think, with small children, utilization of offering them the sacred donut. <laughs> <laughs> As a little treat afterwards, right? Bribery. <laughs> if you're good, you get an ice cream cone. Well, you know, it's funny, you know, Often, you know, I post a lot on the internet and things like that, and you come across these uh, photographs from, you know, long ago, and they will often show children dressed as priests. You know, one of them is the priest and celebrating mass, and one is playing the server and things like that, that they're, you know, they're a kind of forming of sensibilities and imagination that takes place that allows them to enter into then the, the real experience. The, make, the making use of their imagination is a very powerful thing. But as our culture has become more and more secular, what you know, children are focused upon would be you know, iPad and games and things like that. But the formation and religion has just gone off the, the deep end, that there is either a complete lack of it or what, what exists is completely ineffective. Uh, I once went over to uh, there was a school on at Polish Hill, the Immaculate Heart of Mary, at the church there. There used to be a school for uh, a little grade school, and I knew the first grade teacher, and she asked me to come to do uh, talk about baptism. Now, think about trying to prepare a talk for first graders on baptism. I thought, what am I going to do? I talked to college students. How am I going to explain baptism? So I had to come up with all these things about water, you know, what we use water for and things like that. Somebody, you know, she brought a doll in. I brought, you know, the holy oil so they could smell them. And one of them played father, one of them played mother, and we did sort of like this mock baptism. But you know, when I got into that class, as soon as I walked in the door, every kid in that room jumped up and said, praise be Jesus Christ, oh. and uh, waiting for my response now and forever. Because the teacher had you know, been forming them. She you know, was a true you know, Catholic uh, at heart. And so you know, her formation was not simply to educate them, but to form them in the faith. And so they were able then to enter into that experience in a good way. So, you know, why can't parents do things like that with their children? And, you know, grace before meals, all, all those kind of, kind of things, family rosaries, where there's, you know, a pattern of these little periods of silence. You know, even if you can only get through a decade at first, you know, that there's, there's a sense that something special in prayer is being done that requires a certain kind of behavior. You know, even if they don't understand it. Uh, I don't know if, who, who baptized, or I'm, I'm sorry, who babysitted uh, Arthur and April's little daughter one time where she wanted to say the rosary and she kept, she was whining and kept pointing up and they couldn't figure out, wasn't it you, Jim and Becca? And pointing up to the top of a bookshelf and they, you know, upset, you know, and they couldn't figure out what she was talking about. And when the parents came home, they said, well, we say uh, a rosary every night, and that's where the box of rosaries is kept. <laughs> and so she, was, she wanted them to get the box down with the rosary so that they could, yes. Wow. Do we kept trying to do the stages of the cross? <laughs> yeah, it's like, <laughs> come on. <laughs> okay, we're going a little far afield here, so let's get back to Gordini. Where did I leave off? Somebody help. Okay. 
The divine words must be considered as whole words with shape and sound. To focus our attention only on the intelligible concept expressed by them would be folly. It would be a rootless intellectual theory. A word is a wondrous reality, form and content, significance and love, intellect and heart, a full, round, vibrant whole, a wondrous reality. St. Isaac the Syrian often uses this word wonder within his homilies. You know, they, in Syriac, they didn't have a word for, for ecstasy. But, you know, he, both he and uh, Guardini, I think, are capturing something of that experience for us, that there has to be a sense of wonder when we approach the hearing of the Word of God, that we are hearing God communicate to us. And so we, how could we enter into that with a kind of malaise or coldness? We really have to form our hearts, in a sense, prepare ourselves, warm our hearts before the liturgy through our prayer. I think that's why, you know, people would come in, be silent, and they would say a rosary before Mass, not because it was, you know, they were doing empty devotions or something like that. They were preparing their minds and their hearts for the celebration of Mass. There wasn't this fooling around and conversation that taking place before the liturgy. They would come in and kneel and pray or they would say the rosary, but all to warm the mind and the heart so that with a kind of wonder they could enter in, into the liturgy. It's not barren information for us to consider and understand, but a reality for us to encounter personally. We must receive and store it in all its earthiness, its characteristic style and imagery. Then it proves its power. In the parable of the sower, our Lord himself compares it to a seed in search of good ground. It possesses the power of growth, the strength to start and develop life. Hence, we must not receive it as we grasp an idea with our mind, but as earth receives a grain of wheat. Revelation says that the word, the world was created by the word of God. God spoke, let there be. By it we also were made. Beings capable of hearing the word of God gives us in revelation, summoning us to the new beginning and the new life of grace. Whenever we encounter his word, we encounter God's creative power. To receive his word means to step into the sphere of sacred possibility, where the new man, the new heaven, and the new earth are coming into being. What great language within this paragraph. The power of growth, of strength, to start and develop life. Uh, earth receiving a, a grain uh, of wheat, uh, a creative, again, a creative power. All these things are the, you know, images for us to hold in mind as we approach the, the hearing of, of the word of God, that expecting, you know, that there's, this word is filled with possibility, uh, a sacred possibility, Guardini describes it here. So when we should expect God to act upon us, in and through this word, even if we don't comprehend what that is, if we're not conscious of what that act is upon us, we should understand that there is a definite act upon us, that these words are pregnant with divine power and grace, and so we should receive them in that, in that fashion. Any thoughts?
It is not sufficient merely to accept ideas and understand commandments. We must lay bare our hearts and minds to the power that comes to us from beyond. So, you know, repentance, uh, you know, ascetical practice, you know, all these ways that we cultivate the soil of our hearts have to be embraced. God's word then is addressed not only to the intellect, but to the whole man. It is a human quality that seeks to become a living unit within the mind and blood and soul and body. Man, the entire man, must receive God's word in all its significance, in the totality of its form, tone, warmth, and power. That is what the parable of the seed implies. The sacred word must be heard, not read. It should reach us through the ear, not through the eye, as color and form should be seized by the eyes, and not transposed through description. The how cannot be separated from the what. The word that is written and read silently is different from the, fl- from the fresh, full word of sound. In the process of silent reading, words shrink, the resonant fullness but poorly substituted by print. If the divine service was meant to be a reading session, books would be distributed and everyone, priest and faithful, would quietly lose himself in them. The result would be a community of readers. Often we have very little more at mass, but this is not as it should be. The word is meant to rise from the sacred page to the reader's lips, from there to swing out into the room, to be heard by attentive ears, and received by eager hearts. And this is what we were talking about earlier. This, you know, when we do read something and we limit it to that page, we are shrinking it down to something that is more controllable and manageable for us. It's harder for us to have this radical, open attentiveness of mind, heart, and soul to God in order to receive what he is communicating to us and have the faith that something sacred is being communicated to us. And, you know, one has to imagine that part of that, again, is our resistance, that there's a fear that we have to overcome uh, of becoming so vulnerable to the Word of God, of opening ourselves to Him so radically. You brought up the story earlier of uh, St. Anthony, or St. Francis would be another example, you know, to hear that Word in such a radical way, in a vulnerable way, that it brings about a change in one's life at that moment. Now, that is not necessarily going to happen to every individual, but we have to hear that word with that same sense of confidence that something radical is being communicated to us that is going to be healing, that is going to be consoling, that is going to be challenging, that's going to strengthen us in some fashion. Yes? I, uh, I heard a sermon that was reflecting on this a couple of years ago and I've always thought about it since uh, in reading certain gospels. And it was that, um, you know, as much of a, a gift and a blessing as it is to, to receive the scriptures in our native language so that we can truly understand it and, uh, and allow it to do what it's able to do, that even the, even the original gospel writers writing in Greek um, felt like there were these certain little parts 
of the things Jesus said that they didn't even put into Greek. They just left them as they were, like Talitha Kumi or Ekatha or, you know, Elohim, Elohim, Lama Sabatani. And uh, that they didn't even translate those. It was just like these, that you can kind of, you're signaled to the importance of these passages immediately by the fact that they wanted to present the words of Christ himself right. in their exact and original form to be heard. And when you look at the few instances of that and then what those words are, it's really quite profound right. and, and beautiful. It's, um, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, the w one's ears would perk up when that takes place. Yes? Oh, being that it's so important that when to, to hear the word you know, the, um, the Gospels or the um, readings without being read, then one of the things that I wonder is when sometimes it's the reader has an unusual expression or it's mm -hmm. something very distracting, mm -hmm. very of resonance, which is something like someone's in love with some voice that it starts to actually detract. Mm -hmm. Because they, they, they were in a set, you have to read it in a very neutral way that doesn't. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry about that. I'm so expressive. I've seen, you know, like on the radio sometimes I hear some, I think that, they think that maybe I'm trying to, sometimes I feel like they have to be careful and the people, right. you know, not really, they are lay people, you know, they sometimes try to, right. too hard. They make it theatrical. That's right. Yeah, and, 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 yeah. and it gets to be a distraction because then it might actually counterproductive stuff. Right. Clear, articulate, you know, is what is sufficient. You know, or, as you said, overly theatrical, it becomes a distraction in and of itself. And, you know, we can become affected. And, and same, same thing with priests who celebrate the Mass. Sometimes they will become overly effective when they are, are saying the Mass, the Lord be with you, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, it becomes like uh, a variety show rather than, rather than Mass. And so, yeah, great care, and you know, that, that has a lot to do with formation, the formation that takes place in seminaries, but also the example that they receive from other priests. All right, where did I leave off? Admittedly. Pardon me? Admittedly. Admittedly, there is one great obstacle. The fact that the liturgy is celebrated in a foreign tongue, Latin. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> <laughs> Father Myers, do you have anything to say about that? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we try to overcome this by repeating the epistle and gospel in English prior to the sermon. But this is a makeshift and, and makeshift and usually done only on a Sunday on weekdays as well as on Sundays, the faithful are almost entirely dependent upon their books. The divine word ought to reach the hearer simultaneously with its entry into the ceremony of the mass. But as the liturgy is arranged today, this is impossible. And so there's a, you know, certainly a lot that I think people would say about this today and there's great debate within the life of the church. I think what we've seen uh, with the, the mass uh, uh, said in the vernacular that with that also came extraordinary abuses uh, to the point that at times it no longer appears to be the mass. You know, that which was celebrated for, you know, what was it, 1500 hadn't changed for 
1,500 years or longer, you know, becomes almost unrecognizable. And, uh, and so the beginning of the use of the vernacular becomes something that becomes an obstacle to worship for people and, uh, and you know, dispute within the life of the church. And we've seen the spiritual impact that the, the loss of, of reverence uh, has had upon the life of the church. And, and so the discussion about the use of Latin uh, is often tied also to the, the, the changes that are, have been made in the, the, the Novus Ordo. And uh, it can become very heated. And, you know, admittedly, the arguments, you know, of saying, you know, I think Pope Benedict was trying to, and Pope Benedict was trying to address these by saying that every priest has the right to say the extraordinary form of the Mass, that you can't cut off a part of our tradition and expect that not to affect the life of the church. And we've seen it and we've seen how destructive that could be. And uh, I think there was this hope that, you know, the connecting of the two of them together would elevate the one uh, and, you know, help restore kind of reverence. But we haven't seen that take place because it's been often so controlled you know, that where the Latin mass can be said uh, is typically re reduced to one place within a diocese. And uh, if it's said anywhere else, you know, it's often done secretly because the liturgy police will, will get you. <laughs> but, uh, and so, you know, there, but I think Guardini's, you know, what Guardini was seeing here was that in the celebration of the liturgy, and in particular the liturgy of the word, there was hobbling that was taking place there and, and not uh, fully exposing those in, in the moment to hear that word in a language that they could understand. That for that to be an encounter with the word of God, for, for that to be something that is penetrating in the way that we've been saying, that you know, how could that be done unless people knew, knew Latin? unless we were educating them in Latin. But then, you know, that begins, you know, that very quickly began to fall apart. You know, Latin schools and certainly priests being, you know, taught Latin, you know, there's very few who would be even able to celebrate the, the Latin Mass now without, you know, really uh, great, great effort. And so I don't think it's as easy as saying, you know, go back you know, that, that we could go back. I think uh, we would really have to address a lot of different things going on within the life of the church. And I'd be happy if they just uh, addressed the abuses that are taking place. Somebody wants to say Latin mass, they'll jump on their neck with both feet. But uh, anything, the most bizarre thing going on in the Novus Ordo is overlooked. And I think that's what people often find frustrating that you know what held such reverence and what would produce saints throughout the centuries all of a sudden becomes restri restricted in such a radical way and no formation is taking place in terms of how that how the novus ordo is to be celebrated and it was instituted in such a radical way that it really destabilized the church for generations now and and it's been very destructive, yes. 
Is there an official ruling that you can't say the Latin Mass except in one? There's been an official ruling that you can say it. <laughs> the problem is, is that, you know, that there have been often so many restrictions placed around that, that, and if you do say it, that perhaps you would be seen as overly traditional, and you know that you could pay a price for doing that, and or that they'll say, well, the opportunity is given. We have this Latin Mass community. Go there. And you know, I think if you really want to do and embrace this spirit of what Pope Benedict wrote, you would say we would set up all these, you know, uh, opportunities for training priests to be able to celebrate both, and that we would even encourage, this, you know, the each parish to have the extraordinary form as well. And especially in places, say, like a cathedral, you know, the main church of the diocese, that of course, you know, that, that would be some place where, where you would have it. I see a, a, a couple back. Did they freely let them do the by ritual with the Maronite rite and the, and the um, Novus Orda? Say that again? With, with the Maronite rite. A lot of priests are by ritual with that without any problem, aren't they, with the Novus Order? Yeah, there, there are certain, you know, educa educational aspects, th things that you have to go through in order to learn how to say it. But is that and, widely permissible is what I wondered? Well, there are, they, they, they'll allow it, but it has to, you know, the priest, they'll examine the priest and why he wants to say it and why he would want to become by ritual, you know, but there often isn't the... I think it's become politicized in the Latin Rite, where that has not been politicized. And this is this, the struggle that we have now. I, I, I truly, truly do think that Pope Benedict was hoping that what we would see is them side by side, and that the one would elevate the other. But, you know, I don't, I don't think it was naive. I think it was hopeful you know, that that would take place, but maybe it'll emerge later, yes. I just think, I think one trouble with the, with, I, mean, I think it's just, I mean, it's something that could be negotiated, but there's a question of how, mm -hmm. is, is it, with a shift into the vernacular, to which I'm, I'm sympathetic, mm -hmm. it, there's a trouble of which vernacular, you mm -hmm. know, in the sense of, it's, there's, there are different forms of English, and you know, we see that, we saw that with the, mm -hmm. was it, was it, 2010, 2011, mm -hmm. you know, the new translation right. that caused all these these yeah. issues. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it, so it's like, it's, it, it, there's something about, there's mm -hmm. also, I think, something important with, it could be done in Latin or it could be done in a different form of English, mm -hmm. but there's something about the form of the language mm -hmm. that can tell us, you know, this is something different. This isn't, you know, a, a conversation you're right. having with your, with your neighbor, mm -hmm. this is the word of God, or it's, you know, it, right. you know, it, and I think we, <clears throat> I think that's just a difficult thing to, to, once you switch to the vernacular, that's a trick, it's a tricky thing. I mean, it mm -hmm. can be done, obviously, I think, right. you know, we, for a long time, English had kind of, you know, what, mm -hmm. uh, uh, King James right. language mm -hmm. right. that could be used to signal to the hearer that this isn't daily language, mm -hmm. this is something significant, right. you know. Yeah. Um, but that's a, it's a difficult thing yeah. to... I think that's probably where there was a naivete, you know, there was in a sense of how that could be instituted, that there wasn't a comprehension of all these 
questions and all these things that would arise and the way it was implemented in the most un-Vatican II fashion. You know, one day they were celebrating the Mass in Latin, and the next day the priest is turned around and they're ripping out the altar rails and, you know, talk about shaking people, shaking people up. I saw a couple of hands in the back. James, did you have, I'm sorry, I was just wanted to just, I mean, it's always a matter of complexity for me. Mm -hmm. That if what Guardini is saying here is, is true, mm -hmm. then the reversion to the vernacular and the reading, you know, the proclamation of the Word of God in the vernacular tongues throughout the world should have um, signaled a flourishing of sanctity and holiness and deeper union with God throughout the mystical body of Christ. Arguably, it didn't happen. And Conversely, during the many centuries that Latin was the predominant language, exclusive language, that the word was being proclaimed in, arguably, I haven't really thought it through very deeply, but arguably, you had lots and lots and lots of people achieving heroic degrees of sanctity. Um, I just find it curious. I just I, I find it very curious. Yeah. I mean, Francis of Assisi did he know Latin? Yeah. You know, did he hear the the word proclaimed yeah. in Latin and understand? Right. I think we have to be careful, though, not even in discussing it, not to idolize the past either. I mean, there were terrible abuses in Philip Neri's time. You know, the celebration of the liturgy and things such as that, and you know. I think that's, you know, one of the things, his stressing of the familiar discourse on the Word of God and, you know, lack, you know, lack of affectation, you know, there are all these things that... But even you know, he liturgically did not announce the, the Word of God in English, right. or, well, certainly yeah. not English, you know, whatever, right. Italian. Yeah. So, so he would have celebrated the liturgy. I, I don't know, I'd say it really, I mean, it, it truly is, a, uh, you know, it right. perplexes me a bit because yeah. it's been the one thing that I've always thought, well, the, the liturgy in Latin, it's a detriment because you can't, you know, it's not always a given that you hear the word, you know, translated. You have to use the missile right. and so on and so on. Okay. I, so, so I don't know. I just well, think it's kind of interesting. You know, I think the perplexity, though, arises in how that was implemented. It was not thought through, and then it was implemented in this roughshod way, and then there became this wild experimentation that took place. I mean, it was a completely un-Catholic way of approaching things. By Catholic, by nature, as Catholics, we are conservative. We conserve a certain body of truth, and that includes truth surrounding the way that we worship. And, you know, that hasn't take pl taken place, you know, to the point that it's, you know, destroyed, you know, a sense of reverence surrounding the liturgy. And, you know, but I, I think part of that has to do with, you know, failing to uh, uh, address some of the issues that needed to be addressed. And I think for a long time, you know, that phrase that has been out, you know, the reform of the reform, you know, that the people have been saying, well, the Second Vatican Council really didn't take place in the way that it should have. And so we need a reform of the reform. But I think people are losing faith in that phrase and have lost faith in that idea that somehow we simply need to go back and 
do what the Second Vatican Council put forward, that you can't, as it were, put put it all back in the box. It's all it's been undone in what feels like an insurmountable way to many people. That the liturgy has been so, you know, tinkered with over time that it's almost irrecognizable and seems more like a Protestant liturgy at times than it does the celebration of the of the of the Eucharist. Yes. Yeah, so I'm just curious. So what what was supposed to be so so wrong in the church before Vatican II that they had to reform? What was it? What was the problem that that they wanted to actually improve upon? Because all the abuse, all the abuses and mistakes they're mentioning after the supposed reform. What was the the, the real problem that they wanted to correct? What was so bad that they wanted to correct that, that needed to be corrected? That oh. there was all this. I'm not as old as I look. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I wasn't even Catholic back then. So. Uh, but I think there were abuses, like you know the things. You know the masses would be said quickly, prayers would be rattled off quickly, maybe not with a very good knowledge of Latin. You know that there wouldn't be you know preaching that would be taking place. You know that there could be certain abuses that would be taking taking place in the sense of even how the extraordinary form uh, was being celebrated. And you know whether or not one then can argue from that point that such a radical approach to reforming that needed to take place. You know I don't know. I mean I think we can we can sort of question that from what we've what we've seen. Father, Father Myers, did you have anything you want to add, or do you just want to stay? stay? Uh, I'd rather not start. So. Oh okay. <laughs> hey. Do they teach Latin in schools anymore? No way. You have to ask for it. I mean, some seminaries do. You know, they'll have their guys study, you know, Latin and Greek. But, you know, it's not studied to the point where guys are proficient unless they really work at it and stay with it, I think. Uh, or, or that from an earlier age, they were exposed to it and, and uh, make use of it. You know, it's, it's a different age now. Right. So, I, you know, I studied Latin for a year and Greek Greek, and even a little bit of Hebrew and things like that. But if you aren't using it, you're, you lose it. And, you know, you have enough to, you know, participate in the liturgy. But, you know, they had Latin schools, you know, where, you know, kids would learn Latin. Latin. Yeah. And that was, of course, that was a long time right. ago. It's probably why we can't speak English very well. You know, we, we would have all taken Latin. Would... <laughs> they do, there are many hymns and things that we, mm -hmm. we say in Latin. Mm -hmm. Right. Part of the mass is in Latin. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. We're trying to do our best, but. What's that? You can't speak English because we speak the British <laughs> So, any other thoughts? Father Myers, no? Come on. I know. You're bursting. Uh, no, I'm not going to force you. Uh, I, wait, one more. Okay. Yes, Mike. Um, I think the Latin is interesting and it's important. And as a reserved language, right? At the time of Christ, Hebrew was a reserved language. It was the language of the temple. Right. And, and when St. Jerome did the, um, he did the Bible, he, he originally refused to redo the Psalms because the Psalms were in a different form of Latin, which was liturgical. Right. And he didn't want to confuse everyday Latin. 
to what they heard the church right. that was reserved language, right? So right. there was some in interest in, in Latin being the same thing. Right. But if you take, Father, if you take the Novus Ordo mm -hmm. and, the, and the Trinity Mass mm -hmm. in English and you compare them to mm -hmm. each other, it's not the same. Right. Yeah. It's not a translation. Yeah, just earlier this year, I spent a couple of weeks at Silverstream Priory, and they do everything, you know, both the Mass and the, the Divine Office in Latin. And you can see that, the actions of the priest during the liturgy, the multiple crosses that are made, just the experience is completely different. And as you read those language, that language, what you see is a sacrificial content mm -hmm. that proceeds in like a uh, crescendo of mm -hmm. actions. Mm -hmm that is reflective, perhaps more accurately, when Christ instituted the, the sacrament, he said it was the new and eternal covenant. So we lost that at the council when they did that translation. But if you read the, the Tridentine in English, you can see sacrificial words that add up to entering a covenant sacrifice in such a deep way. You mean we lost the sense of the sacrificial nature of the Mass? Is that what you're saying? And also the integrity of the sacrificial actions themselves that don't show up. It's like truncated or eviscerated or deconstructed. Hmm. One is like this, and the other one is like this. It's in English, but it's not a translation of what it was. Well, in it terms of the understanding of the faithful, and even the understanding of the priest, I would have to agree with you. I don't know in terms of if it was lost in the in the Novus Ordo in and of itself, but yes, all right, Father Mike, do it. I think he makes a fundamental mistake here. He says there is one great obstacle, the fact that the liturgy is celebrated in a foreign tongue, Latin. Latin is not a, quote, foreign tongue, in the sense of Spanish, Italian, German, French. Right. It was a, a sacred tongue. And the reason the liturgy was in Latin was to preserve it from uh, being vulgarized mm -hmm. or misinterpreted or right. misunderstood. So there was always perfectly expressed exactly what the church was teaching in offering this divine sacrifice to God. Um, so that the Latin was used to protect the integrity of the liturgy. Um, and as soon as you remove that, I think the last 60 years has proved the truth of that. Yeah, in writing this, I don't apart. think he imagined, I don't think he imagined oh. that the removing of the, of the Latin for the readings would, you know, would have the impact that it has, certainly, you know, it's... You see in, in, the, in the church today, such an emphasis on the notion that the reading of scripture is an educational uh, thing in, in the Mass to, to teach us. And that's certainly true, but in the older form of Mass, that wasn't the primary concern. The primary concern was that even the scripture readings themselves were an act of adoration to God. Right. So it wasn't primarily important for them to be right. understood by the people. The primary uh, purpose was to offer Right. sacrifice. Yeah. And I think well, I think one could argue that 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 having them in uh, in our own language would enhance that capacity to offer that worship and that adoration. One one could liter uh, legitimately argue that. 
And, you know, if it was, that doesn't say anything else about the rest of the form of the, the mass. But I think psychologically, spiritually, you know, everything that he says here in terms of our being human beings and the way that we he hear things, the way that we experience things is, uh, I think, legitimate. You know, the audibly hearing that word. I think I understand what you're saying, that the mere proclamation of the word itself carries with it a kind of grace. It's transformative. But I think, and it's an act of worship. But I think in being able to hear that and to hear it in the way that Guardini is describing it only increases our capacity then to offer that, that worship and adoration to God. Now that's wholly aside, I think, from all the other questions about the liturgy as a whole. And there's a big difference there in hearing the words or even having the readings done in English following the, you know, reading them in Latin. Yeah, I think it's really interesting about the, uh, think about the effect of how language wanders from so quickly to changes meaning. Like there are words that were used last century that today we would not have the same meaning to us. <laughs> and words that, you know, from, from the King James Bible that today would, right. we, we would have to translate. It, it, it's very easy for the words to change meaning, to transform very quickly. Well, and uh, really I think that's what Father Mars was say, talking about, you know, the sense of the vulgar, vulgarization of the language itself. That, trying to avoid that. And I, I do think that's true in the prayers, uh, you know, the collects and everything else that are prayed, you know, prayed during the mass that, you know, the, the, the old sacramentary in particular, the, the prayers were so banalized, you know, the, the stripped of meaning that it hardly, they hardly seem like prayers half the time. And so I'm glad you spoke up. I'm, I'm not worried about it, and I'm the one in front of the camera. I don't know what you're worried about. <laughs> I can be identified. <laughs> Let's turn this around a little bit. No, <laughs> do we have any more to read here? Last two paragraphs. Okay, I'm going through them both. And we must make the best of what we have. Above all, when English texts are read, we must listen with minds alert and hearts and souls receptive. Such listening is all the more necessary because we've heard the words countless times. We are so used to them that they do not easily impress us. We are convinced that we know all about the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' parables, or the epistles, and when they are read, we nod as if to say, all right, all right, I know. We must overcome this tendency or our souls will become like a dirt road over which countless feet and wheels have passed, hard-packed and incapable of a single seed. And I, I think that's very true. You know, the attitude that we bring to hearing the, the scripture passages, that our hearts have become so hardened from, you know, taking it for granted that somehow that we know the meaning of them. The daily changing text of the proper introit offertory communion often say very little because of their brevity. They have been taken from longer passages, mainly from the Psalms, but also from other parts of Scripture. And it's very helpful to look them up and read them in their entirety. We should read also the epistle and gospel more completely in the Bible so as to grasp the context and consult the notes on difficult passages. When they are read aloud in church, we should take great pains to listen attentively. The word of mouth 
The word of mouth is always more powerful than the word of ink. And so, you know, in seminary, you know, from seminary, the men coming into seminary now, that there was never the experience, I think, even that Father Myers speaks of. Turn the camera on. Can you capture him? <laughs> he so boldly spoke about, <laughs> brazenly spoke about, that are one experience. I mean, my only experience, other than the times we were directly went to the Latin Mass, is when there was a choice to be made. But I think even in the discussions and teaching in seminary, it is addressed as past history at this point, that there isn't any real exposure in order that questions like this might come up. You know, what is the effect of doing things in the, in the vernacular? And not only what we've seen, but just uh, even in terms of long-term, what would be the impact of, you know, changing a practice that has existed for centuries. This is not part of, this was not, maybe it's okay, maybe it's St. Mount St. Mary's, but it wasn't part of my, uh, my education. Yes, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, for whatever it's worth, we have, um, there's a, like a weekly extraordinary form class that guys can go to. Mm -hmm. There's uh, Spanish mass once a week, because mm -hmm. a lot of guys go to, right. uh, guys in just big Spanish, Hispanic populations. Um, and there's even talk of, we have a monthly Novus Ordo Latin mass, which mm -hmm. is really cool. You get the readings in English, right. um, but all the prayers and Eucharistic prayer and everything is in Latin. Um, and so, and even during Easter, we have a solemn high mass, which is a really awesome experience. Right. Just really well done. Um, which is very good, but I think you'd have to admit that's probably, Mount St. Mary's is probably in the minority in that regard. Yeah, probably. Yeah. But, there's hope. Yeah. It's yeah. Happening. What's it? But it's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I would say just like speaking from my own experience of like conversion and growing in a spiritual life, in particular a contemplative life, that um, the mass has become like in the verna in English the readings, not just the readings of the word, but the liturgy of the Eucharist. Like like hearing those prayers, for me has become like more and more of a powerful experience. <laughs> And deeply, deeply enriching, like mm -hmm. to the to the degree that I'm like repeating those prayers afterwards and thinking, like pondering on them, like they've struck deep. And I know I've gone to a couple Latin masses, and I'm not saying anything. You know, I I see I'm in kind of like a pro-Latin community here on some level, <laughs> but um, we're here at the oratory. Yeah, well, it just seems like they're, no. <laughs> I'm not, it's, not that it's a pro or anti anything, but um, I guess. I didn't have the same experience. You mm -hmm. know, I had to be reading the missile, no, or I wasn't really understanding the words. Mm -hmm. And um, but I but I realized, like at mass, is that there's often like there's such a distractedness among the congregation, and I think it's just a reflection of our culture, mm -hmm. and that we're not living lives, generally speaking, that have a depth and a quality that's able to really receive in a deep way. And I think that's mm -hmm. for me why like. Um, developing a spiritual life has become so important because I, I've learned to grow and or at least prepare my soul in silence to receive something that's deeply powerful, which I think is what Guardini's like really right. trying to get at. And I, I think that would be true for myself as well. But uh, there has been a breakdown in, Christ in Catholic culture that uh, would sustain that. 
and the, and part of the breakdown of that Catholic culture has been, you know, what has happened to the liturgy. Like I think the oratory is sort of unique in that way, but we had to work very hard to foster a sense of, of reverence and devotion here. And part of that has been the Eucharistic adoration. So there's a stained adoration of the Lord in between the masses that then prepares us to enter into the celebration of the mass. But even then there has had to be a kind of formation and education that takes place that, you know, you don't, you come into the chapel to pray, to be silent. And, and we've had to enforce that, you know, not by breaking fingers or anything like that, but, you know, just by, you know, fostering saying, all right, be quiet. If you have to talk, leave, leave the chapel. And, uh, and we have a very, we've been able to create that culture here because we have a community and a group of people who, of like-minded people who can sustain it. But I think the church as a whole, you know, what is experienced in the, the typical parish, especially when it gets very large, is something that lacks, you know, reverence altogether. People on their cell phones, the talking before mass, after mass, the, the Eucharist has been moved out of site, the tabernacle's been moved out of site, and uh, the music itself has become the same thing, you know, banalized and uh, nothing that sort of upholds uh, a reverence or would foster this sense of preparing oneself in silence uh, to, to enter into the Mass. You know, I feel fortunate. The only two places that I've, I've, or three places that I've experienced liturgy here at the oratory, seminary, and this one little Benedictine priory in Ireland. That's been my I've, my experience of the church <laughs> since I converted. <laughs> so I've been one of the, you know, I, I haven't been exposed to what I think most people are exposed to on a weekly basis. And believe me, I hear it. You know that it can be devastating at times. You know, in terms of the homilies that are heard, how the word is proclaimed, the demeanor at mass, and the music at mass, it all becomes one enormous distraction that is disheartening and demoralizing. And whenever there's a void like that, there's an enormous danger because something is going to seek to fill that void. And I think perhaps maybe that's what Pope Benedict was trying to avoid. You know, that by providing the, the extraordinary form, making it something that every priest could celebrate, that it would be integrated into the parish life again, then you aren't creating such a, a radical void that people are going to say, forget it. I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to leave the church and I'm going to become Orthodox or I'm going to, or I'm going to become, you know, Byzantine, you know, where there's going to be reverent liturgy. Or I'm going to, you know, find myself if I'm lucky, uh, a Latin Mass in the in the diocese. You know, this is the central, you know, uh, part of our life as Catholic Christians, and it should be tre treated that way. Yes. So if you do go to your regular parish Mass, and this happens all the time, I'll be trying to pray before Mass after mass somebody comes over starts because my that's where my husband grew up so every everybody knows him they want to see the baby and then they just start talking to us how do you kind of give the like say they give them the look i'm i want to talk but now isn't the time 
Like, how do you still be affable, but also reverent? That sounded pretty good, actually, <laughs> to say, I'd like to talk, but this isn't the time. I'm preparing for Mass, or I'm offering my Thanksgiving. You know, and I think we've gotten so used to the fact that we need to be, you know, well, not just nice. <laughs> in any case, the word nice really, in its root, means stupid. So we shouldn't probably use the word nice very <laughs> as often as we do. Uh, but yeah, being social or that somehow it would be that we, we aren't being accept, accepting and kind if we tell people, you know, we want, we want to be praying at this moment. This is the only place you know, where we have that opportunity for that deep silence. You could talk anywhere. Why do you have to talk before the Blessed Sacrament? I've, I've seen people pull out phones and answer their phone and start a conversation in the chapel. And to me, that's just, a, you know, a loss of common sense as well as a loss uh, of reverence on a profound level. And these, these are all the things that we have to try to regain. So one can gently do that. I think we become angry and frustrated because we wait so long to say anything and we're worried about what somebody's going to say and then we blow up, you know, if not with them, with someone else, you know. And it's been hard for me as a priest to do that, to tell people you've got to leave the chapel if you're going to talk. Once I got in there and there was a guy who was, it was during adoration, he was talking. And so I went over to tell him that, you know, he needed to pray silently. And it turns out he was deaf. And so I said, you've got to, you're saying your prayers too loud. What? And I said, you're saying your prayers too loud. And it, is, it came back, what? And before you know it, the two of us are like yelling at each other in the middle of the chapel. So I finally had to say to him, come outside the chapel and we'll talk. And so we got out there. And I said, you're whispering your prayers, but everybody can hear them. And he said, oh, thank you. I, di I didn't, he said, I'm deaf and I, you know, I'm losing my hearing. I didn't, know. I, I didn't know. And so from that point on, it wasn't an issue. But I think we're afraid of that because we're uh, afraid of offending because the norm now has been become to have regular conversations and to treat the church as the church hall you know, yeah, that's right. No different from where you have donuts after mass. Well, to be fair, in some churches, two of which I saw today, it is actually the exact same. There are tables set up for after mass coffee wow. and donuts in the back of the sanctuary. So it is that's the north. Because, because it is the parish hall. Yeah. It's one and the same. Wow. That would be so really see, we could really simplify things here. <laughs> <laughs> I know. One of them has a fish fry, fry and then <laughs> the sanctuary just had this great day old fish smell. One, one more question. <laughs> yeah. and what I wonder is it's not just uh, the, the language translation or the shortening of the prayers. Has there been any loss in efficacy of it? Because I, I know for some of the other rites, like baptism and stuff, they did away with part of the thing that, that's why we're having more problems with um, demonic attacks and stuff like that. So was there a change to the liturgy that reduced the efficacy that people are not as holy as before? I think that's it's a, a temptation towards simplification. You know, certainly there are major problems in, I think, the way that the liturgy is celebrated. And there's, but there's been also this enormous breakdown in Catholic culture, in formation, 
you know, in terms of uh, dealing with the, the capital sins and vices and, and engaging in the spiritual life that makes us open and the, to all kinds of things. And then the culture that we're surrounded in, that we've immersed ourselves in it freely. So why would we not expect that there would be this radical breakdown in morals within the church all the way to some of the highest of levels? And I, th I do think certainly what has happened in the liturgy is part of that, but I think it's a, a radical oversimplification to say that that's the only part of it. The, the, it it's the whole, you know, the whole life of the church uh, has to be addressed in how we're living, uh, living out the faith. You know, it's the secularization of the, of the culture and, and the church has been formed and shaped by that. With the loss of uh, religious schools, you're depending more um, on the parents to give that, but if the parents didn't receive it from the previous generation, then they have nothing to give. Yeah, formation goes back further and further now that it, you know, a lot of times parents would stop forming their children in the faith post-confirmation. They were free, those classes were over and they didn't have to take their kids any longer. And now it's you're lucky if it's they have them baptized, but then oftentimes the family will never go to church after that. A purely cultural thing. So, okay. Well, we st stop there and we'll uh, say together the prayer to Saint Philip and then a final hymn. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Look down from heaven, Holy Father, to the holiness of that mountain, to the lowliness of this valley, from that harbor of quietness and tranquility to this calamitous sea. And now that the darkness of this world hinders no more those kindly eyes of thine from looking clearly into all things, look down and visit, O most diligent keeper, this vineyard which thy right hand planted with so much labor, anxiety, and peril. To thee then we fly, from thee we seek for aid, to thee we give our whole selves unreservedly. Thee we adopt as our patron and defender, undertake the cause of our salvation, protect thy clients. To thee we appeal as our leader, Roll thine army, fighting against the assaults of the devil. To thee, kindest of pilots, we give up the rudder of our lives. Steer this little ship of thine, and place as thou art on high. Keep us off all the rocks of evil desires, that with thee for our pilot and guide, we may safely come to the port of eternal bliss. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. St. Philip, Pray difference. For us.